grab your favorite beverage, kick up your feet as you ascend with me into the joy portal of soul reflections, fresh perspectives, fun ideas, and wisdom. Light to light and heart to heart. Smile and breathe even deeper as together we will soar above the perception of all hurdles and shine brightly as the light we are. Namaste, everyone, and welcome to Light Laughter and Lattes. My name is Jerry Habstreet. I'm an Avesa quantum healer, medical intuitive, self-ascension intuitive counselor, and your friend and soul connection for the next hour. So welcome, everyone. Welcome Oneness Talk Radio Facebook, Oneness Talk Radio YouTube, Oneness Talk Radio, and all of those listening via podcast on Anchor or Spotify, welcome. I'm so happy you are here today. And we are live. We have a chat. So we welcome your comments, questions, any of that. Hopefully we can do some interacting if you have some questions for my awesome guest today. And so about our topic. We have been at a time for the last probably two years where there's been this rising of the feminine energy. And it's been this kind of slow rising of more and more women, especially stepping up and stepping out. And this past year, it has been really strong. And you've probably noticed in the world that more women are taking greater roles and um, more leadership roles. And this is something I am seeing everywhere. I'm seeing it in myself. And isn't this awesome? Um, so my guest today is actually one of those people who is doing the same. She is an author. She's a translator. She's a storyteller. She is one of my dearest friends and soul sisters. And I've been so fortunate to travel the world with her. And she is here to share her most recent book titled, I got to get the title right, Amazing Women of the Middle East, 25 Stories to Inspire Girls Everywhere. So I'm going to welcome in Wafa. Hi, Wafa. Hello, Jerry. <laughs> this is so much fun to have you here. Correct. Um, we're having a wonderful visit in our own living rooms. I know. <laughs> I know. We, Raf and I were just sharing that this with this time and everything speeding up and energy being the way it is, the only time we get to communicate with each other now is when we're both working. <laughs> May it long last. <laughs> okay, Wafa. Well, let's get into this book. But first of all, you wrote a book all about amazing women in the Middle East. And you wrote the book to inspire children, girls specifically. So why, what was the motivation for this? Well, girls need a little bit more inspiration than boys. I've been working a lot. Before I started uh, becoming a writer, I used to work with women, trying to encourage women um, for instance, to become independent financially. So I worked in several NGOs like this. And I always found out that women always take the backstage. For instance, they would 
let their brothers go to school and learn higher education and they would be helping their mothers. So I, I, that's from my part of the world. And also I've read that in my part of the world, which is the Middle East, uh, that uh, maybe as many women uh, or as many girls as boys go to school and graduate, and sometimes even girls get the better grades, but eventually the moment they get married, they go home and they stop being part of the active society. Of course, they bring up their children, they're looking after their families, but they stop earning money and being outside the home. And I always found that a little bit um, sad because it's like the whole of my society, let's say, was limping. It's like you're only using one leg, which is the men's leg you're not using the women's leg and to, in order to have a full human being you need to use both legs so i've always had this thing and all my books are about amazing women but this one is called amazing women anyway i love that so what your background had to contribute to this right so you grew up in a place where women were probably a little bit more suppressed than say the united states where i'm from and you must have had a family and situation that kind of nurtured this um this inspiration in you around empowering women yeah i mean i come from lebanon lebanon is uh, not too bad in terms of uh, the way women are treated, but there are many laws that really need to be improved. I'll give you an example. I'm married to a foreign man, not a Lebanese man, and my children are not allowed to take my nationality. Whereas if it was the other way around, a Lebanese man is married to a foreign woman, the children do take nationality. So there are laws that definitely need to be changed for women to have equality. But in my private life, I grew up with a very strong role model, which is my mother, and she is actually mentioned in the introduction of the book. Her name was Najla, and she was an amazing woman. She had studied psychology at university. She was one of the first women to go to university in Australia. She was brought up in Australia. And then she came to Lebanon, and she opened this vocational school for girls. Vocational school means a school where you learn a vocation like hairdressing or secretary or uh, cook or um, seamstress. And my mother was absolutely passionate about her school. She started off with five students. And then before she died, she died young, unfortunately, of cancer. She had 500 students and about 50 teachers. And it was one of the best vocational schools in the Middle East. And she used to go around the Middle East lecturing about how important it is for women to earn their own money. And they didn't have to go to university for that. They only needed to have a profession or a certificate or something they could do and bring their own money home. And that was what my mother was passionate about. And I'm also passionate about women because I want to write about women who give examples for young women, who give them a way to dream of something else. That is what I'm passionate about, using my words to make people think that, yes, they can change their life.
So besides your mother, what female inspired you to be who you are and do what you do? I mentioned in my book, I've had a, a two or three mentors. I mean, in my own home, I had a beautiful auntie and I had dedicated a book for her, the one for my mom, it was called, which I wrote a couple of years ago, a book of quotes. This auntie was an extraordinary woman as well. She did not work outside the house, but she was immensely cultured. She was like, I could say, such a grand dame, they say in French, you know. And every time I went to visit her, it was such an occasion. She always made fantastic cakes. She did her own clothes. She, I mean, so uh, she sewed her own clothes. She knew everything about what was happening. She used to read magazines and watch all the interesting programs. For me, she was very much of a role model in the sense of culture and the way I wanted to look like. I mean, she was tall and blonde, I know, but she had this regal kind of lovely demeanor and so warm and I adored her and she was my godmother. She was an important person. Her name was Catherine, Katie, I used to call her. And then at school, I had some amazing teachers, believe it or not. My parents sent me to a very, very forward-looking school in which uh, girls did actually do sports because in many schools in the Middle East, in my days anyway, not many girls did sports. I was telling you, Jerry, in a private conversation before how I was 30 before I learned how to ride a bicycle because they were thinking that bicycles could cause something to happen to your private part so that we were not encouraged to ride bicycles. I mean, it's crazy, but that is the way I was brought up. Or roller skating, my God, I fell and, you know, sprained my arm roller skating. I was really zero at sports, but I still tried. I really still tried. But anyway, cut a long story short, I had two amazing teachers at school and they were both very much into the literary field. And I think they allowed me to become my literary self. And one of them was my Arabic language teacher and the other one was my French language teacher. And they both were extraordinary teachers. And I mentioned them in my book in the acknowledgements. And one of them, my Arabic language teacher, is also a writer. And she's like 95 now. And uh, she follows my program on radio. So she's mentioned in my book in the acknowledgement. These, I think, were my three role models when I was growing up. So you had to go through and, and come up with 25 women. How did you do this? How did you come up with that well, number in those women? I could have done 50 women. Mm -hmm. That is what's so extraordinary. Because once you start searching, you'd say, oh, my God, I can't put this one. I really want this one. But then you have to make an editorial choice. So the actual, they were, they're actually definitely more than 25 women who are amazing in the Middle East, historically and in modern times. However, our choice was to present a, a kind of smorgasbord, a kind of, you know, variation. We didn't want them all to be queens or social activists or um, famous business people. 
we wanted them very much to represent every profession. So we have an ice skater. She's the first ice skater in the Middle East who wears the hijab, which is the headdress. We have a, fa a fantastic uh, architect whom everybody knows who's uh, done 250 and she's a dame, but she died recently, Dame Zaha Hadid. We have a famous pilot in the Middle East, a woman pilot, she's from Oman. We have an astronaut. She is now living in America, but originally in, from Iran. And she was the first Muslim woman to go into space and be a space tourist. But she had to train and she had to go to the space station. And she did lots of scientific work. She's an engineer. So it wasn't like she was just, you know, having a ride in space. She actually had to work very hard to do this. And of course, there are. There's my favorite singer on the planet, who's Feirouz. She's now 85. I grew up with her songs. And funnily enough, three weeks ago, President Macron gave her the Légion d'honneur, the highest, highest distinction in France. So she's still being. I mean, she's been awarded many, many uh, awards, but this is her last one, age 85. And then, of course, there's the one whom I absolutely, she's definitely my top, which, which uh, tells me never to give up. She was 94 mm -hmm. before she became famous. And she is a sculpturess, a sculptor, and a painter. And she had to wait 60 years to become famous. And for me, that's hugely inspiring. Mm -hmm. I always tell myself, well, if I don't make it with this book, I still got till... 94 till Selwa Rauda Shukhair's age to become famous or well-known in my writing. So are these women that you followed as you were growing up or did you get the idea for the book because you wanted to inspire children so then you had to start researching and finding these women? Yeah, it's the second. Some of them, the historic women, uh, I, I knew them as I was growing up, but the West does not. For instance, Theodora, she was an empress of Byzantium. Very few people know her unless they know about Byzantium. Hurem Sultan, she was the wife of Suleiman the Magnificent, and she was an amazing woman. And the West doesn't really know about her. Uh, there are Zenobia, the queen of Palmyra. They only know Palmyra because it's been bombed recently by the latest war in Syria. But they don't know that at one point in time, this queen tried to fight Rome and become independent from Rome. And Rome had to go after her and you know, read the riot act to her. So there are some amazing women, historic. But with the modern ones, I definitely had to do some research. As I said, I wanted to give a smorgasbord. I wanted to give a variety of professions, not because I strongly believe that you can do whatever you want to do as long as you love it and you put your heart in it. And when I was growing up, the, the three main professions were that everybody was encouraged to do was engineer, doctor, or lawyer. And I didn't want to be either engineer, doctor, or lawyer. And I remember when I told my dad, I want to be a writer. He said, oh, writers don't make money. And I've really had to work very hard to undo this pattern. Yes. You can make money writing. You just have to believe it, you know? 
Absolutely. I, I was just thinking today as a topic for one of my shows, it should be, you know, don't follow the money, follow your passion, and then the money will follow you. Absolutely. <laughs> but still, still, that seems to be the thing that catches everyone is to follow the money, wherever the money is. And then, and then people get all sorts of fun things because they're not living a life that they love anymore because they're doing it for the wrong reason. Yes, so, exactly, exactly. And we all go on that uh, kind of treadmill and then we all realize that, you know, it's not going give to give us what we want. And at the end, we get off that treadmill and then we start really living according to our heart. But I think we all go through it. Very few people go straight into their heart's desires. But maybe the young people are, are way better than us these days. Yeah, well, I don't know. And I do a lot of work in the school system with the young people. And I know that there's a lot of competition. Our high school students are feeling especially around grades. And I'm not going to get a good job if I don't get a good grade. And where do I rank in the class? And on and on. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I didn't have these pressures. I don't think we could even find our class rank if we wanted to. I, you know, I it surprised me that these are something that's being shared with the kids and they're gathering stress around it. And so I, you know, they're told you, even when you're in college, these are the salaries of what so-and-so makes. So if you're going this, this is going to be your salary. And so you kind of start steering your career towards the amount of salaries you can make. So I don't know, hopefully, hopefully that's not the case. I think, I think our, I think everyone will find out real quickly that when they're headed in the wrong direction these days, you, you, you'll feel it. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I think that uh, the young people are probably more intuitive. I don't know. They, they seem mm -hmm. not to be so attached to materialism as we are, or, or we were anyway. Right. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So you're 25 women. Um, of the ancient women, is there, is there one of them that that just like, oh, wow, this is your favorite? I always say the same answer. My favorite, because she is my archetype. You know, we all have archetypes in ourselves. It's Shahrazad. She's not even a real woman. They don't really know whether she existed or not, but she definitely is real because uh, she's so famous. I mean, she is the one who said the thousand and one nights, which are known as the Arabian nights. So she's a storyteller. And what happened is she came at a time uh, where uh, there was a disaster in, in her country is basically the king, uh, the king's wife was unfaithful to him and the king went into a rage and he decided to not to trust women anymore and to kill to, to marry a, a woman every night and to kill her the next day. And so he was going through all the maidens of his land. And eventually Shahrazad, who was the daughter of the vizier, which is the minister, she said to her father, this must stop. Just let me marry the king. And the vizier said, you can't do this. It's crazy. I can't give you to death. She said, don't worry, don't worry. I have a trick. So what happened is she went into the, uh, king's chamber she, they married and then she said to him oh before I go to bed or we go to bed my sister who's 15 
is accustomed that I tell her a story every night. Do you mind if I tell her a story? It's my last night on this planet. And uh, the, the king said, yeah, if you want. He, he, he felt a little bit sorry for her because she was the daughter of his prime minister. And so he, he was a little bit more lenient. And so she started her first story to her sister, allegedly. But she was actually telling the story to the king. And the king became fascinated. And what she did was what every storyteller should be doing, which is stop the story at the right time. So people would turn the page or want to read more. And it's exactly what they do in television series. You know, they stop it at the time. So you want to see the second and the second and the third. Mm -hmm. She did that a thousand years ago. You know, she knew the cliffhanger. And she kept that king enthralled with her stories. It's called 1001 Nights for 1001 Nights. But it isn't 1001 Story. That's a trick question. Uh, she had about 200 stories and the stories were divided. So she would tell a story, a third, one night, second, third, third. Sometimes it could be 10 nights a story. She would just go story after she just would be so clever with the story and the story she would have poems and jokes and after three years of telling stories and the king couldn't bear of course kill her he was he loved he couldn't wait to come back from the throne room and go and be with in private with her so she could tell him stories because that would relax him after three years he realized that she, she had given birth to a couple of children and he married her and she became his queen. And then he calmed down ab about women. So she's definitely my favorite heroine, as you might imagine. I'd love to tell stories for three years and people not to be bored with me. <laughs> and then I I'm going to read you a story eventually from another queen whom I think is quite fascinating. And it has to do with us having watched the Sri and Kira show on the Nefertiti fire. So I thought, oh, let's read the story about Nefertiti because she's also in my book. And there are lots of fantastic women from the ancient times like Zenobia, Queen of Palmyra. There is Cleopatra, of course, and not because she was only in love with Antony and Julius Caesar, but because she did some good things for Egypt herself. And also I have Theodora, who was the empress. I've got some fantastic uh, ancient women and of course, some fantastic modern women. Okay, and, and who's your favorite modern? My favorite modern woman, it's, it's quite difficult to, as I said, Selwa Rauda Shukair. I really like the fact that she worked 60 years. She's a painter and a sculptor. 60 years without being recognized. And suddenly what happened, it's an extraordinary story. When she was 94, Tate Modern, which is this huge modern uh, museum we have here in the UK, was sending scouts to the Middle East to try and see if there are any artists worth their while being exhibited in London. And they stumbled upon her work. Can you imagine? She was 94, already going gaga. So her daughter welcomed them 
and there was this and they opened this house and it was full chock a block a block a block of works of art and they went crazy and they said to the daughter yes we want to do an exhibition about her and two three years ago they or four years ago maybe they had this huge retrospective of her work at the tate modern which is a huge museum here in britain and it was sold out it was so popular it was so successful so this woman started to be known at age 94 and she died i think age 102 but now her work is in the tate uh, tate saint ives which is another branch of the tate in cornwall and she also is now in many collections but what she was 94. So I like her because it means don't give up. Continue doing what you do. Continue believing in yourself. You never know when you will be recognized. I really like that story. Don't you agree, Jerry? I do too. That is a great story. So share a little bit about the birthing process of a book because truly it, it, it's a birth. And so, you know, what, what, was the, what was the greatest challenge for you in, in writing a book? Keeping it to a thousand words per heroine. Because, I mean, we decided we don't want to make it. So it's like a thousand words per heroine. So 25 heroines. I, I had to kind of decide on what is more important. Than, I mean, because these heroines have incredibly rich lives. I could have written a whole book on every heroine. But we wanted it to be snappy. And it's like you read the story before you go to bed. Even if you're the mother of the adolescent or the adolescent or the grandmother. So it's like one story per night. A thousand words is easy to do. And that's what people are doing. A lot of my grown-up friends are just saying they love it. They just read one story, go to bed. They're really enjoying it. So that was difficult. To, uh, to put the exciting bit in a thousand words. So I had to choose my words very carefully. I also needed to make it interesting because it's so easy when you're not telling a story to kind of fall into some of the history books we've all had when we were young. You know, I didn't want that. I want it to be a story, you know. Uh, so that was another challenge. And keep my voice as a storyteller in it. And also, as I said, some of the women I really loved, but we thought, no, we're not going to have two singers. So you have to choose one. Right. And oh, I can't have five writers. I mean, I love writers. Uh, just have to have one writer. So the choice, whom do we choose? So that was a tiny bit difficult. But I had an amazing editor, an amazing publisher. We worked so well as a team. We, we barely had... It was very seamless. It was very intensive. Like five months, you have no idea of hard, hard work. I sat three months in my hut in the garden. I have a pink hut and it was the summer. And I didn't go anywhere that summer last year. I spent three months working on the book. And then the editing started coming. And I was telling you before that I finished pressed the send button on the last edit of the 25th Women when I was with Sri and Kira at Tosa Blue Mountain. It was Christmas Eve, 24th of December. Bing! 
send, finish the book. Wow, that was a relief. I could actually enjoy my Christmas, you know. So, yeah, it was really five months of intense, intense, very happy work, but very intense. Yeah. So what was your or what is your greatest joy over this project? The greatest joy is that people are loving it. I really, really loving it, whether it's the um, bloggers or whether it's the reviewers or whether it's people. Every time somebody buys it, it's so much fun. They send me a picture of them having either reading it or having just received it or them with it. By the way, I haven't showed you it. This is the British version. It's a bit dif uh, different from the American version. So um, here. Okay. The, the American version Lovely. has um, pick the women around it. The British are a little bit more pared down. It's the same thing inside, except the American version has American English and the British version has British English. So, um, I mean, I think that um, that was wonderful to know that people love it. That is so rewarding. There's nothing worse. I mean, that's the thing about people. People say, I want to write, I want to write. And everybody has a story inside them. But I think what people are afraid of is to be criticized. Nobody wants to be criticized. And if you are going to write, you are going to be criticized. I remember when I wrote one of my first books, I used, I thought it was a good sentence, but one of the critics noticed it and they said, oh, she used... He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. How boring is this? I thought I was being good by saying he was born. I'm <laughs> saying, he was, you know, see, you don't know what critics would like or what people would like, but you just have to trust that you've done your best. And then the book is like a baby. You've given birth to the baby and it's going to have to walk on its own and fly on its, uh, on its own. But Yes, I know most people are afraid to write because they don't want to be criticized. But part of writing is being open. You have to just believe that you're doing your best and then it's up to the public. Well, I think now would be a lovely time for you to read one of your stories because not only are you an author, but you are also a storyteller. So. This is great. We get the we get a storyteller to tell the story you wrote. Okay. Um. As 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 I said, um, I would like to read about Nefertiti because yeah. of what happened with Sri and Kira lately with the Nefertiti fire. And first of all, I'm going to show her. Oops. Here, that's how she looks like. Can you see it? I I can. I can see most of her. No, here this way. Don't move over a little bit the other way. There you go. Yes, perfect. It's a stunning, stunning. I mean, the illustrators of this book have been the most inspiring illustrators you could ever, ever work with. We had five illustrators. Each one took five women. That's why we could do it so fast. And each one uh, has a slightly different style. Uh, and I will show some more pictures after I read the story. For instance, um, this is a, 
this is another style. She's she's a queen of Egypt. Uh, a very different yeah. style. Lovely. Love the pictures. Well, yeah, have you the got, pictures are fantastic. Have you gotten any feedback from any young children yet? I know you said there's a lot of adults that are reading. Yes. Oh, my God. My favorite picture of all was my cousin's children. She took a picture of them. They are two young girls, exactly the age that I'm aiming at, which is nine to 14. And I think they're nine or 10. And they're on the floor with a book open like this, you know, reading. Uh -huh. Oh, that was a wonderful. And she sent me a picture of uh, one of my a wonderful author, Maze Yerdi. I was telling you about this one. They, she was reading this story. And who is this? She was the um, Gibran. I was telling you, he was the author of The Prophet. He's a Lebanese, but he lived in New York. And The Prophet at the time sold, I mean, in the 60s. He wrote it in the 30s, uh, but he sold uh, after the Bible. It was the biggest selling book of all time after the Bible. It was the prophet. And hippies in those days used to get married by reading a page of the prophet, specifically on marriage. It was a beautiful spiritual book. And she was his correspondent. She lived in Egypt and he lived in New York and they corresponded for 20 years. They wrote beautiful letters to each other. It was a very platonic love affair, but beautiful, I mean, literary letters. She was also a, a writer herself, but not as famous as he was. And she had a salon. He, she, he, she had a literary salon in the 1930s, which in those days, was extraordinary because men and women would be together, you know, without the veil. And uh, she had her mother chaperone the salon. But the men would come and they would discuss literature, they would discuss politics, a literary salon, and it was run by her. So she's an interesting woman and people don't know anything about her. Uh, and the sad thing is none of her work is translated into English. Maybe this is what I should be doing. You know, I'm a translator as well. Mm -hmm. But anyway, there's so much to be done. I hope that <laughs> that I, I'm given a long life so I can do everything I want to do. But it's in the hands of God, we say in Arabic. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read you Nefertiti. Okay? Okay. Okay, here we go. I think I might have to put in my glasses because um, it's on colored paper. All right. Did you know that Nefertiti's name means a beautiful woman has come? Some half a million visitors flock to the newest museum in Germany every year to see her statue, which has been exhibited there since 1913. With her beautiful yet intriguing face, she has been fascinating people for 3,500 years. Nefertiti was not only the wife of Pharaoh Amenhotep IV, known as Akhenaten, but she also helped her husband to build the cult of Aten. Aten in Egyptian was the sun. Unlike other Egyptian gods, he did not take a human form. Aten was represented by a sun disk with rays ending in human hands 
holding the ankh, which is, you know, the ankh, which is the, that sign, long life, or the key of life. It is also said that Nefertiti secretly ruled Egypt for two years when her husband died. Let's read on to discover this beautiful and powerful queen. Do you want to read on, Jerry? I do. Okay. <laughs> Nefertiti was one of the most influential queens of Egypt. She and her husband ruled together for over 15 years. Akhenaten wanted all his subjects to know that she was his equal. So he wrote beautiful poems to show everyone how special she was. For instance, he wrote this poem in which he mentions her and it says, The king who lives by Maat, which is justice, order and harmony. Akhenaten, son of Re, great in his lifetime, and the great queen whom he loves, the lady of the two lands, Nefer Nefru Aten Nefertiti, living forever. This is a very old poem. It's like we're talking about 1370 before Christ is a long time ago. So they are not going to do rhyming couplets like we do now. <laughs> you know? Anyway, soon the royal couple became the high priests of a new religion. Based on Aten, the god of the sun, they burnt incense, they sang hymns, and they played music to him. The traditional priests who looked after the other Egyptian gods were not pleased at all. They had lost their jobs. To strengthen their religion, the royal family moved from Thebes, which is now called Luxor, and built a new city to honor Aten. They named it Achetaten, which means horizon of the Aten. It is now called Tal Tel Al Amarna. It was located on the east bank of the River Nile, halfway between Memphis and Thebes. Akhenaten was built facing east and precisely positioned to direct the rays of the morning sun towards its temples and doorways. The open-air temples had no roofs so the sun could enter freely. In the center of this city, the king built a palace where he would receive officials and foreign dignitaries. But he and his family lived in a palace to the north where they could enjoy some privacy. Every day, Akhenaten and Nefertiti rode their chariots from one end of the city to the other, mirroring the journey of the sun across the sky. They had started a revolution, not only in religion, as priests and children of the sun god, but also in art, because they depicted themselves realistically. Never before had pharaohs been shown being playful and having fun with their children. They had always looked so serious and rigid. <laughs> Nefertiti gave Akhenaten six daughters, but no sons. So 
As was the custom then, her husband took a second wife, Lady Kia, and a son was born, the famous Tutankhamun. He was only eight years old when his father died. Some say that there was a pharaoh named Smenkhkare who ruled before Tutankhamun came to the throne. Some say that this pharaoh was Nefertiti herself, who might have ruled while Akhenaten's health was in decline. It is possible she may have pretended to be a man. Whatever the truth, Smenkhkare died two years into his reign, around 1340 BC, and Tutankhamun was crowned king. Alas, King Tut, as we sometimes call him, died young. His tomb is the most famous tomb of any pharaoh because it was discovered perfectly preserved with some 2,000 fabulous treasures that teach us about life in ancient Egypt. However, the great Nefertiti's tomb was never been found. Really? No. You don't know, you have never seen her tomb. But the bust is in Berlin and it's one of their most prized possessions. She looks stunning in it. She really was a beautiful woman. No wonder he was in love with her and gave her six daughters. But um, yeah, that's Nefertiti. Did you know all this stuff about her? No, I didn't. I didn't know all that. You, you must have had a lot of fun researching all of this and reading all this. I'm sure you had to read a lot to pull. A lot. I mean, not just read. I mean, in the uh, case of the heroines, the, the, the modern, a lot of the modern heroines, I did a lot of video. I watched a lot of videos on YouTube, uh, you know, interviews by them in Arabic or French or English and wrote some notes to get some quotes. Yeah, I did a lot of, for the modern ones, a lot of videos. Nice. Well, I'm going to be wondering what happened to Nefertiti. <laughs> Where is her tomb? <laughs> Where is her tomb? I mean, every now and then somebody comes and says, oh, we've discovered her tomb, but we don't know. Not you so. Know? Yeah. So how has you know, where you came from, how has the face of the feminine energy changed now, current time? I think uh, when I was in Lebanon last, which was last November, it was during the um, protests against the government. And I was so pleased. I went to the Women's March. That was fascinating. There were these women, they were having the microphones and they were, you know, saying it's enough. We need enough of masculinity. We need the feminine. We need to be to have equal rights and all this. And they were marching for days and days. But the main women's march, the beautiful thing about her is that, you know, I only come to Lebanon once or twice a year to see my dad who's 98. God bless him. Anyway, I met I met old colleagues that I knew from university. I met friends I had, you know, not seen for years. Everybody was in the march. So the women want a change. The problem is 
not just in Lebanon, in a lot of the Arab world, change is not easy to get. For, you know, you've heard about the Arab Spring. Not many of those countries who had the Arab Spring succeeded. And uh, so that is the story, you know. The people want something, but what happens on the ground is something else. It's more for historians than me, a writer, but um, there is hope because the young people definitely don't want a repeat of the old. But I, I really hope that they will succeed better than we did because I think my generation didn't succeed as well as they should have. And uh, my hope is with the young generation. I think they're amazing. Oh, it's going to happen. Hopefully. It's happen. <laughs> That's how I write the books. The only way I will push towards a change in mentality is through my words. I definitely believe sometimes words do have an impact on somebody's life. I mean, I know some of the people I read about when I was young impacted me, you know, and not necessarily women. I remember when I was a young girl in Lebanon, I was in the summer, I ran out of books to read. So I went to the public, little public library in my village, which was run by my father and his friends. So everybody put in the books that, is for everybody else to, to borrow from. And I chanced upon a book on Albert Schweitzer. He was the guy who went and started this hospital in Africa. And I was fascinated by this guy. Wow, he leaves Switzerland. He was a pianist, he was famous. And he goes and he opens a hospital for the Africans. He's, and he trains as a doctor. And uh, so he leaves. But then he goes back every year to Switzerland and he gives these concerts to raise money for his hospital back in Africa. I mean, so, you know, these people, when you read about these people, they definitely change your life, mm -hmm. you know? I don't know, who was a person who changed your life, Jerry, when you were young? Well, I mean, a lot of people did, but I'm smiling as you're sharing that story because it made me think of a story that absolutely changed my life by reading a book. And I hadn't thought about it until you started sharing. But I'd moved out to Los Angeles and lived there for a year, you know, straight out of college, lived, you know, on the beach, worked downtown LA. <laughs> I had a tremendous amount of stress on my shoulders for like a 24 year old or whatever I was. Um, being in all of that, and I ended up getting in an accident and totaled my car. And I had to take the bus now to work from the beach to downtown LA, which was a godsend. I'm like now I can hop on a bus and I don't have to deal with that traffic and I can read a book. So um, Leo Bus Buscala, I think his name was, he was called the doctor of love or something. And so this is the book I'm reading on there. And after so many rides of this, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's inspired me. I need to go do something that brings me joy. And I, that, I mean, as soon as I got that aha, I, I left LA and moved to Steamboat Springs, Colorado and spent a year skiing and working on the mountain. <laughs> But, but it was from the book. It was the, the inspiration I got from the book that caused my whole life to change. Yeah, I mean, I think books do change lives. That's for sure. And that is the beauty of books. I mean, they really, some heroes and heroines that you read about in your childhood, you will never forget. 
in your life ever you know i mean i when i was really young i read the famous five and this you know i love them i wanted to have their adventures i used to tell my mother let's go for a picnic you know let's make those little sandwiches and go and I, and we used to do picnics with my friends under the table we couldn't go anywhere but we, under the tablecloth we'd make the sandwich and eat them and pretend we're somewhere else i mean like i was really inspired by the famous five when I, when i was a little girl and i read them in french you know so anyway I don't know the famous five. Oh, the Enid Blyton. It's a it's an English series, but it was translated into French. And then there is the Secret Seven. She was an amazing writer. I mean, I uh, know many many people who, uh, when they were young, were inspired by her writing. You know. So tell me this: Are are children going back to school now? Where you're at? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, a lot of my my friends are teachers. Okay. And they are uh, language teachers and they are uh, teaching at schools. One of them wears a visor, you mm -hmm. know. Um yes, I mean I don't know really know I've stopped teaching long long time ago. When my kids were little I taught a bit. But yes, schools have opened. So are you going to be taking your book into any of the schools and doing any reading? Well, at the moment, I'm you know, doing your spare time. <laughs> I know. Almost, no, I am doing uh, reading um, online at the moment, and I am practicing my online reading. I had done during COVID eight videos for the Qatar Foundation Read Aloud, and that was a really fun. I read from my previous books, from the Arabian Nights and from the Seven Wise Princesses. I read four stories in Arabic and four stories in English. And it was the first time I actually used a video because usually I'm way better just with audio. And it was fascinating. And you know, with COVID, uh, we couldn't go to the hairdresser. So you would see, it was eight weeks. I had to give them every week a video and you could see my hair growing longer and longer <laughs> longer. I couldn't go to a hairdresser. I was in the end of the world in Canada. And I could see, you could see in the videos, my hair really reaching my shoulders. But anyway, so now I am being asked by the Brooklyn Library to do um, a reading for them in New York. So I'm gonna, I think I'm going to do a lot of Zoom readings at the moment mm. until things get safe. So it's, it's a good practice for me to be a bit more techie. I'm not the best techie person on the planet, but I am willing to learn. <laughs> Well, you made it on here with me today, so you didn't do too bad. <laughs> no, I know. I'm so, I'm, I'm absolutely keeping my fingers crossed, you know. Really, I want, you know, I, I don't know. There's something about the internet since COVID started. The internet is not as good. Yeah, yeah, and we're, and we're in a retrograde too. So it's, we're doing quite well today, I'd have to say, considering all of that. So I wanted to ask too, are you, do you have anything else? Do you have another book that you're, you know, now that you've got, I'm sure this this is like a, a snowball of energy, right? That's been building and building and building and building and building. And now you've like birthed this book. Are, are you feeling, so how are you feeling? Like I know people who have written books who literally go into a depression almost afterwards, almost mm -hmm. like a postpartum depression. Today, before I talk to you, 
I was speaking to my favorite editor and I was telling her, look, I want to write this book. Do you think it's feasible? And she gave me the okay. She said, yes, let's do it. So yeah, I have actually two books in mind, one for grown-ups and one for the age group, which I always write to eight to 12 or nine to 14, this kind of middle. I'm not very good with little younger uh, people. Mm -hmm. But I, there is a book that I've signed the contract, which is the first time I write about a war. You know, I'm a child of war, Jerry. Mm -hmm. And I have finally, after 40 years, written about my experience as a war child. It's not a sad book. It's actually a very positive book. But it does talk about the war. Because it's so easy for children just to know about witches and wizards and all this stuff. And it's great. But, you know... They also need to know about reality. You know, I'm not saying like this to spoil their childhood, but they need to be, to have empathy and compassion towards kids who don't have what they have. And I think that is why it's good for people like me who have suffered from the war to write about it. And I write about it really in a positive way in the sense that it's a good ending. You know, there is a bit of a bad uh, part but it's also based on me when I was under the bombs for six months, you know, as a young teenager and waiting and waiting for the fighting to stop and eating horrible food, no fresh food, cans. I don't even eat a can since 40 years. I absolutely, way before Archangel Zatkel said, don't eat the cans, I don't eat cans. <laughs> you know, I've eaten cans in six months and that is enough. You know, meat as well. No, because of all this horrible meat that we ate in the cans. And uh, so, yeah, this is a book will come out next year in November. And maybe we will have another discussion about it. I've already signed the contract. But I am always want to write more. It's, I don't know. I, when I finish a book, I feel like, oh, my God. I don't know. I have this thing about, oh, my God, I hope I'm going to get the long life to write all the books that I have in my heart and in my head. I have definitely two at the moment bubbling in, which I really want to, to have them done rather quickly. So we'll see. So are both the books about your, your life as, as a war child or just one of them? No, the one that I've signed the contract is, is based a little bit on my life as a war child, but it's also based on a child in Damascus in the war, which is a, based on a true story I read. So I blended my life with her life and I created a new heroine. And I think you like it. Mm, but the sure. new book I want to write, it's also about women. I mean, women is my passion, Jerry. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the divine feminine has to rise. Look, I love men. I've got a husband, I've got children, I've got a son whom I adore, but I think it's time for the women to become the equal, you know, mm -hmm. and I think the world will change because, you know, I read somewhere that during matrilineal times, there were no wars. Did you know that? During oh, there were no wars. Women didn't do the wars. So we, we have to stop the wars. It's completely mm -hmm. unnecessary. We can talk. We don't have to fight and kill each other. <laughs> that for sure is my, 
opinion about the war, having lived the war and having witnessed the war and having witnessed three times my city of birth being destroyed, at the end, you sit at the table and you talk. War is not necessary. It's not needed. So that is definitely what I believe in. And uh, yeah, I just hope I've got enough um, life in me that I could write all, me, all these books that are bubbling in my head. So Wafa, if you could give um, your eight to 12 year audience, and I would go beyond that, let's just say starting at eight <laughs> and above, a message, just any kind of message, because you, I know you're doing it through your books. If you could just give them a few sentences, what would you share with our women, with our children, our female children? I would share uh, something that one of my heroines called Zahra Lari, who is uh, the, 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 the ice skater that is, you know, um, wearing the hijab. I mean, she, she is uh, the youngest heroine that I have. Here she is. Sorry. Can you see uh, it? Yes. Well, she competes wearing the hijab and she made the changes in the rules of competition because she was being uh, punished for wearing the headscarf. And then she, she complained to the, and, and that they said, okay, now sportswomen who have to wear the headscarf can do it. So Nike has started doing really modern headscarves. Anyway, she has a really good quote. She says, train hard, stay focused, love it, give it your all. It's never too late to believe in yourself and accomplish your goals. That's the youngest heroine I have. She's, she's in her 20s. And uh, she, is, she is an ice skater in a country that is a desert. The UAE, <laughs> they have no ice. They have to have artificial ice skating ring inside, you know. And so she's an amazing inspiration. Definitely, girl. definitely a pioneer. Yeah. yeah. Love yeah. the pioneer women. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So can you share, we have just maybe a, a minute or less, more like 30 seconds. Can you share with everyone where they can find your book if they would like to and find you? Yeah, they, you can find my book at Interlink in America. So just go interlink Amazing Women of the Middle East and you'll get the page and you can order it in America. It's also available on Amazon. And my website, if you want to read more about what I do, is www.wafatanoska.co.uk. And you can write to me there. I have a contact page and we can continue the conversation. And thank you, Jerry, so much for having me on your show. You're welcome. This was so much fun. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I hope you all have a fabulous week. And I'll see everyone in October. <laughs> okay. Namaste. Thank you for listening in to Light Laughter and Lattes. It has been my honor and pleasure. Please visit jerryhab.wix.com. And check out my services and my packages. I work with people in person and from a distance. And I also give free 15-minute consultations. And so until next week, may your week be filled with light, laughter, and a whole lot of love. <laughs>